Blog Talk Radio. Pugilistic linguistics, check out the 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 pugilistic linguistics. Check out the pugilistic linguistics. Check out the pugilistic linguistics. Check out the pugilistic Welcome to the Pugilistic Linguistic Show. I am your host, Michael Foster, the voice of reason in an increasingly unreasonable world. And I'm back again. Uh, we kind of, I'm, I'm kind of doing something a little different than I normally do. Normally, I just sit here and rant for an hour. Well, uh, I don't feel like ranting today. I'll let somebody else rant for me. Um, before I get into it, though, remember, anywhere you get your podcast. Come check me out, Pugilistic Linguistics. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start getting some PL swag, making some shirts. If you want some of that, come holler at me on my Facebook page, the Pugilistic Linguistics Show page. Uh, come out and come do the damn thing. So today, this is number two in the Pugilistic Interview Series. Today, I have Mrs. Abina Sankofa. M Hotel, the great. <laughs> she told me not to say that, but I told her I was going to do it. The great. Oh, my God. And, hey, you know, you got you to gotta call it out and see it. You know, this lady is doing big things. This lady's done big things locally here in Des Moines. Uh, I definitely want to showcase the things that she is doing, the things that she has done, uh, because not everybody gets to do it. Uh, just a background, you know. I work. I used to work with her at uh, on the plantation. And, yes, uh, Michael. Yes. Yeah, we hit it off. It's funny. We we met by accident, and we hit it off it, immediately. You know, immediately, we, and it was just you adding you to my circle of friends was just like the best thing. I think anybody, and I'm not just saying this because we're on the air, but um, just truly, anybody that has you in, as a part of their life has a benefit. So I appreciate you, that. I appreciate that. You know, I try to, you know, I try not to be an asshole all the time. Sometimes it works. <laughs> sometimes it uh, so I kind of want to just get into it, you know, get into a background, you know, how do we get to this point? So let me ask, are you originally from Des Moines? Yes, I am. I am a daughter of the city. That's what I like to call myself. And by the way, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be with you today. And for all your amazing listeners, I can't wait to make new friends. But no, seriously, I am a daughter of Des Moines, and I am very proud to say I'm a lifelong resident of Iowa. Now, that may sound funny because a lot of times people can't wait to move and claim they're from Atlanta. But I am a daughter of the city of Des Moines. Now, I tell people all the time, Atlanta full, y'all. Stop going down there. Ain't no, ain't no more room for nobody down there. <laughs> uh, so, so where'd you go to school? Okay, school well, I graduated. School. Yeah, I graduated Des Moines Public School. So I am a public school. Um, uh, uh, I'm a product of the the public school system. So anything that I might say today that makes no sense at all, we're going to give credit to the Des Moines public school system. And so after, I'm sorry? I should say blame it on the rain. (laughs) Blame it on the rain. So after I graduated high school, I decided to go um, to college. So I enrolled at 
Kaplan University, which back in those days was called Hamilton Business College. So I went there but decided um, to, to drop out. So I only went to college for about a year. Um, I dropped out of school. I had a, a daughter um, my senior mm-hmm. year in high school, so I was raising a baby and decided I needed to work instead of completing school. And people don't realize a lot of times, especially after the last 15, 20 years, we push college so much, college, college, college. College ain't for everybody, you know? Um, yes. Some people need to do other things. So, Well, this is the funny thing, Michael, is I do not – I'm not an advocate for people dropping out of college. I'm not – unless it's like – unless they feel like they need to, and I'm not an advocate for people, you know, having babies during high school either, unless, you know, that unless it just happens, whatever. But what I'm saying mm-hmm. is this is my path. My path was uh, happened in such a way that got me to this moment right here. So would I go back and change it? No, because that works for me. And so also when we're talking about the American university, I think um, it's a, it's a, it's become quite the institution. It really has. And so I consider myself um, to be an intellectual, but I'm not an academician at all. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Well, everything that I've learned, I've read it in a book on my own, or I've been taught by um, many, many, many wise people that have come into my life. And so I would put myself next to anybody and we can have a conversation about anything because I'm confident in what I know. And I'll name a few other great human beings who were black, influential, um, had a large impact on our society and us as black people in particular without college education. Fannie Lou Hamer. Yeah. James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. James Baldwin never went to college, but college went through him. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I didn't mean to hit the rabbit trail, but. <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. And, and the thing about what you just said, is, I, I think the most poignant point you made was intelligence, but not academic. You know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not an academia, but I'm an intelligent person. People seem to realize that they have to go hand in hand with each other, which they don't. Uh Academia, and for me, because I went to college and I didn't graduate and I drank too much and I party too much, but uh, the rest academia, of them. Right. I just the rest of them. Academia, the thing about academia, think about teachers. They always, and you can't help it, it's just the nature of the beast. They give it, they give it to you with their own spin. And mm-hmm. you can't help it when you, when you're talking about something, you always inject your personality into it. You always inject your history into it, regardless of if it's a fact. So intelligence and academia need to stay away from each other because they aren't mutually inclusive. That makes any sense. Well, one of my great um, uh, minds that I really love to read and follow is Cornell West, Dr. Cornell West. And something he says is something that I terribly agree with, and that's that, you know, I'm I'm always suspicious of smart people. You know, mm-hmm. I'm always suspicious of smart people. Let the phones be smart. We need to be wise. And so if we can just enact some wisdom about our everyday lives, I guarantee you we could turn the world upside down. And, and, and you know, especially understanding intelligence and wisdom, 
Intelligence is knowing stuff. Wisdom is the application of intelligence in my mind. Um, Indeed. You, you could be smart as a whip and, and dumb as a box of rocks. Because you yeah. uh, implement your intelligence to wisdom. That's why most wise people are older people because they've learned by trial and error how to implement their intelligence. Well, I know some old dummies too. Huh? Hold on, I know this about myself. I I am a woman in my early forties, but I do have a head full of white silver hair. So I'd like to think that my gray comes from wisdom and not worry. And so I, you know, I give everybody a certain amount of respect. But when I see silver foxes like myself, I make sure to pay a little extra attention to to them because I do admire that wisdom and I respect that. I understand completely, and I and I I do it too. Like I say, it's, there are some old dummies, but there ain't too many. Of them. So, <laughs> but let's transition. So, you went to college. You you, you did the family thing. Uh, you know, when I met you, I, you were on the cusp of doing big things. Uh, I'm not saying you hadn't done it to that point. It's just the fact you've done some real big things since then. And I want to touch upon one of them. You you ran in 2016 for the governorship. You ran well, lieutenant governorship. Uh, you ran for state. I, that was so much fun. Oh my gosh. Let me, Mike. Let me tell you. Okay, so I am, like I said, a daughter of Des Moines. Um, love my city. I've grown to really, really care about what happens in Iowa, and I'm Mm -hmm. happy to say that I feel that way. I have an affinity to this place, and anything that I can do to contribute to its growth and for black people prospering here is what I'm going to do. So in 2018, I um, I had a a wonderful conversation with a young man named Marco Battaglia, um, he was the one of the libertarian candidates for governor um, the last election cycle. And so we had a great conversation, and, and he told me that um, he had made a list of people that he would consider to be uh, partners with him along this journey. And he said, my name was at the top of the list. And he asked me, would you be my running mate? And I said, for what? <laughs> Yeah, and so, you know, after thinking about it, pondering it for several, um, I won't tell you how long I pondered it, but for quite some time and discussing with my family, I decided, you know what, it's the right thing to do at the right time, if only to tell our people and to show our people what the possibility is. I'm going to do it. So I accepted, and I was um, the second black woman in Iowa history to run for lieutenant governor. The first was um, Almo Hawkins in the 80s. She ran on the Republican ticket with, um, oh, gosh, I can't even remember. The, uh, Jim Lightfoot, That's, that was his name. So what was that experience like? Okay, so and maybe I'll drill that question down a little bit. Um, being a black woman in Iowa, running for state office, how did that play expensive? How did that play in Dubuque? You know what I'm saying? So what was that experience like? Well, I mean, first um, first thing I'll say is that our campaign um, had uh, good momentum. Marco had already been campaigning around the state um, on his own before 
choosing a lieutenant governor. Um, so he had already built a lot of traction around Iowa. He had made a lot of um, people smile, and um, they sh- he shared values with a lot of Iowans, which I think is incredibly important. That's where you find common ground is by identifying the values that you have in common with people. And once they see that, then you become a human being to them. So Marco had done a great job of doing that. Um, Where I came in, um, at the point in which I came into the race alongside him, was Des Moines, the central Iowa area, was just kind of um, getting an understanding of what the playing field was looking like. So, I, I think, um, of course, I was on the inside, but what I've heard from a lot of people on the outside looking in is that when I um, became known to be a part of of the race, then it just kind of made people pay a little bit more attention. When you see the representation, when you see that there's another black person um, with your interests in mind, it makes you pay attention. And so I did turn a lot of heads, and it was it was a great experience. There were you know, there's always there's good and bad with everything. You know, I think public life, that kind of um, public scrutiny that comes along with it, and the eyeballs and the questions and all those things, you know, in, in are invasive of a person's privacy. So that was a little different for me. But um, I certainly enjoyed listening to people, meeting people, and really um, showing them as well as them showing me, them being other Iowans, that we share similar values. And then, you know, if you care about your children and I care about my children, guess what? We're moms together. We're not a black city girl and a white farmer woman. No, we're moms together. So I think that that, um, helped a lot of people see some basic human values. So in the midst of the campaign and that kind of thing, Marco had the traction, Marco basically humanized himself to people who wouldn't look his way before this and brought you in. Did you find that, like you say, black city girl and white farmer woman and we're both moms together, was there a general acceptance outside of Des Moines? You spoke about Des Moines. Outside of Des Moines, you know, when you, when you went to County 47, was there an acceptance? Was there an apprehension? What did that feel like? Okay, so I'm glad you asked that because first um, I will say that um, the point in, in, in the race that I came in was just before the primary election. So just yeah. before the primaries. And so I personally did not have the opportunity um, to make it to all corners of the state. I mostly was in the central Iowa area um, just because we wanted to, to, to be sure that we were distributing our resources properly. And then had we made it past the primaries, then we would have sent me out more places. But we wanted to make sure that we, you know, were strategic about, you know, where we went and everything. So I unfortunately didn't get a chance to go out around the the greater area of the state, but I can say that um, in my personal life, acceptance is relative. Like it matters not to me whether or not you like me if I'm at the grocery store and and we're bumping into each other. Let's just be polite and move on. But when it comes to serving when it comes to serving on a state level, then that acceptance piece becomes important. And so I don't think that Iowans were given the opportunity 
to really gauge whether or not they would accept a black woman. Me, me, you know. So had we made it past the primaries, I would have the answer to that. Okay. So along that line, um, to take it to its natural progression, would you ever do it again? Can you repeat that, Michael? You say, would you ever do it again? Not necessarily state office or whatever, but would you ever put yourself out there as a candidate for something again? Was the experience enough for you to to whet your appetite? You know what? Just just in how you frame the question, it kind of like it disturbs me a little bit because I don't I don't I don't have the appetite for politics. And anyone that does, something's wrong with them. My my appetite, if you put it that way, or or my heart, my heart is for the people. So okay. if ever there's an opportunity for me to be of service um, to Iowa in general and black people in particular, then I will seriously evaluate what it involves, what the outcome may be, and what my contribution could possibly be at the highest level of that. And if if the opportunity fits, you know, where I am in my life and the time and everything, then I can't say that, that I'll say no. It, it, I'm open to whatever. Okay. <laughs> if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. You know, wedding the appetite is saying, you know, that political office, that, that drive, that yeah. got you to this point. You know, does, does, does running make that drive even stronger? And it, 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 given the right circumstances of, from what I'm hearing you say, yeah, but given the right circumstances. Yeah, given the right circumstances. But see, this is something I'm never, ever, ever going to back down on is no matter what capacity I serve in, it will be for the people in general and black people in particular. No matter what level or, or capacity of service I'm doing, that is my priority because I am for the people. We all want the same things. We want our families to thrive. We want safety. We want security. We, want, we don't want to be hungry. We don't want to be out on the street. No one wants those things. So I fight for the people, but black people in particular. Fair enough. Uh, so... You were good friends with, I would I will call, I will call him a heavyweight in the boy. Uh, you know, he was on the school board. He had to run for some state officers. He published a local newspaper, Jonathan Narcisse, who passed away. It was a couple of years ago now. I don't remember exactly when. It was a couple of years ago now, wasn't it? It was February 2018. Yes, my dear yes. friend. So I'm positive. They, no one who, I kind of knew him tangentially. I didn't know him to I could sit there and shake his hand, hey, John, how you doing? But, you know, I, I run into circles with him, and I kind of saw how he operated. Uh, knowing him the way that you did, was there something about him that you took with you to shape your worldview almost? Because of what he accomplished here, uh, is there something, or better yet, better question, what did you take from him that helps you go along your merry way? You know, Jonathan Narciss was and is, I will say that he still is, a resounding treasure um, for the people of Des Moines and the state of Iowa. Um, He affected and impacted positively a lot of people, organizations, um, communities, 
agencies. I mean, his reach and his impact was vast, and we love him deeply. So I miss him terribly. And actually, when um, I decided to be a part of the Libertarian um, candidacy for the governor's uh, office and lieutenant governor's office, I reflected on on uh, some of John's old videos and his his old um, um, just adages about life and politics and how it all works together. Um, so the one thing one thing really important that I learned from Jonathan, and by the way, I will say that in the beginning of your show, I referenced my Des Moines Public School education and said that if anything I say makes no sense, we're going to blame that on the Des Moines Public Schools. Well, on the other side of that, if there's anything at all that I say to you with any intelligence that makes any, any sense at all, I give credit to three people, my wonderful father, my amazing husband, and my dear friend John. I learned everything I know from them except the stuff my mama taught me. But everything wow. else, I give it to them. But the one thing Jonathan really imparted to me was um, the importance of being factual and having data and knowing the data and, pro- and providing proof. Because you know what? You can talk to someone all day long and be right, but if you cannot prove it, it matters not. So I learned from Jonathan to know what I'm talking about and be willing to put my name and face next to it. Okay. And, and that is a real needed quality, especially in today's era of fake news. Um, people just spouting whatever they say off the top of their head, with no facts, and you're supposed to take them as gospel. I think that's how we ended up with dude and on Pennsylvania Avenue, but he shall remain unnamed. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> so, and, I, and I get that. You know, like I say, I, I knew him tangentially. I knew him from the standpoint of we've been in the same place, but I could feel a presence, like a... a The word I always use is majestic. Uh, There was a majesty to him. He carried himself a certain way. You could see there was something with this dude that we need to figure out or we need to not figure out, but we need to get a piece of or get around it. Maybe I can get by osmosis. Yeah, and I'd like to think that I I took a little bit of that from him as well. Um, I really, really try (laughs) to be um, my very best self. Um, when I am in a room talking to people um, about the concerns um, that we all have um, about the state of our society, about our culture, about our neighborhoods, whatever it may be, I try to be my best self. Um, Most of that is within me. You know, it's my confidence level. It's my study. It's my um, understanding of the topic and knowing my facts to support my statements. Yes, indeed, but it is also... Um, if you remember, like you said, Jonathan dressed to impress. He had his mm-hmm. near at all times a fedora, you know, feathers, a cape, all that. Like, you know, so he made an impression, and I think it's important for um, for all of us really to make an impression. You know, I always say to black churches, if you, if your church doors closed down today, would your community notice? Mm. And if not, then you're not making an impression. 
So I, I try to live my life in a way that I make an impression on someone for the good. I think it was Maya Angelou who said, and I'm paraphrasing, something along the lines of people forget what you say, but they never forget how you make them feel. And yeah. I, I really think that is a, a core tenet of you, based on what I know of you, um, based on our conversations, and we talk a lot. Well, not much anymore. We talk a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And I've always sensed that, you know, you're cognizant of how you make someone feel. Uh, you, you can be wrong, but you don't come at somebody's throat like that. And I've always appreciated that of you. Uh, Thank you, Michael. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. That means a lot. You brought up the, the black church. And this wasn't, this isn't on the topic list, but this is, you brought up the black church. And I saw a post of yours, I don't know if it was today, yesterday, some of the lines of, again, I paraphrase because I just remember poor stuff, I don't remember the exact words, but it just simply is, look, if your church ain't helping the community, don't ask me to come sing. Why am I going to come sing <laughs> the church? And your man's just pocketing all the money. That's not what you said, but it's just of it. How do you feel about the black church in 2019? black community and our issues that we constantly face. What place does the black church have or what should it have? That's, oh, wow. <laughs> well, okay. Let me, full disclosure, I am, as many black people are, I'm a church baby. And so mm-hmm. I was born and raised in the church. So in the Christian church, let me be, be specific I was born and raised in the black Christian church um, in the tradition of the church of God in Christ. So let's just go here. Just don't, let's go. So my experience um, as a child was, you know, that was a part of our life, attending church, being active, being a part of, you know, special programs, music for the kids and plays and all of these things. And it enriched our lives and made our lives very full, and we grew to, to love it, and we learned to look forward to it. And knowing that historically the black church had been a safe place for people in times of distress. So, you know, um, one of the first things that black people did upon getting freedom was to build a church and build a school, and they were usually the same place. So the black church has always been a central component of our um, our, our, lar- our larger cultural identity here in America. So knowing that and being raised with that in my DNA, it sickens me to, to see the state of the church now, largely absent on major issues. Um, and there are, and I will stop and say, there are churches doing good work in their communities. But on mm-hmm. a corporate level, um, they're largely silent on major issues. So I'm curious about that. I wonder about that. But you know what? It's We've got bigger fish to fry um, because if we ever have another Trayvon or another Eric Garner, another Philando Castile, another Sandra Bland, we will show up. We will show up. I just don't mm-hmm. know if we'll show up as the church, but we will show up. So what I'm hearing you say is the church, 
I don't want to put words in the mouth, but I'll say it. Uh, the church, to me, is shirking their responsibility to the community, generally. Um, that, and, and, and I go the same way. I grew up in the church. I grew up in the Southern Baptist uh, thing. Uh, I, I was everything. I was choir director. I was a choir member. I was a rap group. I was a dancer. I did it all. I hosted the junior high service. I did it all. So like you say, to see what it has become sickens me. Just because it's not it's doing a disservice to its people. So I was curious as to how you well, to say that it's the church's responsibility to, like, okay, it's, I don't know if it's the church's responsibility to stand in the face of social issues and speak. I just know that historically it has. I don't know. So historically it has, but now I, I don't hear anything. Well, I guess I guess I'll, I'll ask you this, and we turn this into a debate, y'all. Uh, I ask you this. Doesn't his doesn't its historical place suggest a responsibility? Like whether it whether whether it's actually in the book as their responsibility, the fact that that's how they've operated for so long or have operated for so long, does that suggest a responsibility? Okay, Mike, I can't. I, I this is what I'll say. Um, because I've pondered this for a while, and I've had these questions, um, these questions you're asking me. I've asked these questions of other people, and so I've I've become um, I've I've decided to think to shift my thinking rather than try to shift uh, where the church is or may or may not be. I decided to shift my thinking, and so. I kind of agree. It's not a kind of, I actually do agree with the late, great Ella Baker, um, one of our foremost women um, in the civil rights movement of the early uh, 40s and 50s. She said mm-hmm. strong people don't need strong leaders. Strong people don't need strong leaders. So I am moving away from from a messianic style of leadership where we exalt one person you know, every generation wants a Martin Luther King. He was a wonderful, 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 iconic figure, and he did great things, and he sparked a lot of creative innovations as far as moving us forward. But strong people don't need strong leaders. People, uh, Ella Baker and her uh, contemporaries say that um, Martin didn't make the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement made Martin. So I'm moving away from a messianic style of leadership to a collective style of leadership where we all stand up in our full authority as human beings and take our place and lead where we are. So wherever that leaves the church is where that's going to leave the church. So I don't want to take my, my responsibility as a human being and shift it onto anyone else. I say we all stand up in our authority and take our rightful place and be um, leaders and pillars in our community with or without an institution behind us. I can respect that. I can respect that. Okay. So let's get off that topic. That's a, that's a rabbit hole. <laughs> I enjoy talking to you. It doesn't matter what we talk about. That's true. I enjoy talking to you also. It's, it's always enjoyable. Uh, 
I want to shift gears a little bit and kind of touch on the hot budget topic that's going on today, society. And I, and I bring you in on this because you have you were featured on a news story, well, featured on a news magazine locally here uh, over the last few weeks, I think, uh, about reparations for the descendants of slaves. Yes, I sir. Know, I shouldn't say I know. I've read, you know, what you thought about it. I'm not going to claim to know. So let's talk about how you feel and why you feel about reparations. First of all, uh, do you think they are uh, necessary? No, not necessary. That's not the word. Uh, do you think they should be paid? Maybe that's the best best way to say it. <laughs> well, let's cut to the chase then. Okay. So first, I think, um, number one, there must be a lot of education about reparations. And I say that because um, I, you, could talk, you could walk up and down the street and find random black people, and I guarantee you a good number of them won't have a clue what reparations is, <laughs> black people. So I think the first thing I want to do is, is just define reparation and what a reparation is. It's a means of fixing something, repairing something that has been broken. So that's fairly straightforward. And so when we apply it to the um, catastrophic um, generational events um, of the American descend, the African American descendants of slaves, um, then we're talking about fixing something that was broken. So. Um, I'll give you a little story. So a a black man on the coast of West, I'm sorry, a black child on the coast of West Africa um, in the 16, I'm sorry, the late 1600s, we'll just say that, the late 1600s, his village was raided and his mother and father were murdered. His um, siblings were um, snatched out of the house. And this child, 12 years old, was taken and kidnapped by some strange people. He didn't know who they were. They didn't speak his language. He was taken on a walking journey. He had to walk this. um, How old did I say this child was? Did I say 12? 12. 12. This 12-year-old child was forced um, to be tied up to other people whom he did not know and uh, trekked along a journey for nine days. Um, walking in inclement weather, severe heat, without food and water, until they got to a holding location, which was called a barracoon. And they, the barracoon was like a, a large jail, for lack of a better term. So a large jail that had to be loaded to full capacity and beyond capacity before those people could be transported from the barracoon location onto the bottom of a ship. They, then he's on the bottom of a ship, chained to other people whom uh, he did not know and he, did, he couldn't understand. They were from different tribes. So the ship sailed. The ship sailed off. And this has everything to do with reparations. Just bear with me. I the got ship you. sailed off, and he is laying on a plank tied to several other people on his back facing up, this 12-year-old child. He's traumatized, totally traumatized. 
all of the urine, fecal matter, um, vomit, menstrual fluid from everyone above him fell down onto him. And his bodily fluid and defecations fell onto the people below him. Once a day, the people would be yanked by the chains and brought up top to exercise, which was really they got whipped and rinsed off with uh, salt water. So imagine salt in an open wound and you're naked and you've defecated on yourself and other people's defecations are on you as well. How humiliating. So after three mm-hmm. months of this journey, they, um, those who survive are at the coast of Alabama and then uh, this child um, is allowed to get off of the ship, given some clothing, and placed on an auction block next to a woman that he does not know. All he kept hearing was the word sold, sold, sold. So that was the first word he understood of the English language, sold. Hmm. He and this woman next to him were sold as a married couple and shipped off to a plantation. The plantation owner was named Robertson. So this child and this woman who's now his wife that he can't understand because she does not speak his language are now married, and they are being called nigger Robertson number one and nigger Robertson number two. They make it work. They they do their jobs. They learn their jobs. They live in horrible conditions. They have children, and they have more children, and they have more children, and they have more children. Meanwhile, throughout all these generations, they live and die. More children are born. They're carrying this plantation owner's last name. Mm-hmm. And so here we are. We fast forward to, oh, before we fast forward, we must say there was no health care. There was no wage. There was no house. And then later on down the line, there was no bathroom for them to go to. There was no front of the bus for them to sit on. There was no voting right. No, they couldn't even read. No, they can't go to our school. No. They, so all of, throughout all these generations, and then we fast forward to 2019, and the descendants of that child that was forced to wear the name of the plantation owner that purchased him is saying, okay, so this is all the stuff that my lineage has had to come go through in order for me to be here at this moment. We would like back pay. That's all we're asking for. And then the federal government says, no. What a slap in the face. So the question becomes, how do you fix what's broken? And so that is the case for H.R. 40, which is the um, uh, bill that's in the House right now um, to um, create a committee to study what reparations would look like. Okay. So Does that make sense? Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. It makes absolute okay. sense. Um, see, I did some research on your thoughts about reparations, and I kind of I kind of fell in lockstep with them because it wasn't just give me a check. No, and that's conception is is people is the majority culture. White people think when they hear reparations, they hear that they have to write out a check 
to their black neighbor, and that's not that's not exactly what reparations could look like. Now, I have some things in mind, but that's what H.R. 40 is going to determine. But if I were a part of that committee that's going to study reparations, I would say since black people have had historical disparity in realms of housing, for instance, redlining and messed up FHA loans and, you know, Donald Trump wouldn't let no black people live in his buildings, all these things, I would say, let's do some um, some mortgage reform for black families. Or you could say, or not or, but in addition to that, historical disenfranchisement with education. Well, let's wipe out black student loan debt. Well, let's, you know, fully fund HBCUs, historically uh, black colleges and universities. Let's fully fund those organizations. Um, economically, you know, Enslaved people didn't earn a paycheck. They didn't have money. They were the money. They were the what we consider how we carry around debit cards right now. That's how mm-hmm. plantation owners carried around their slaves. It, oh, I got three slaves. You only got four. You know, so that we were the debit card. So we go from being the capital to becoming capitalist in in a failing capitalist society. So I would say some economic bolstering of black-owned businesses. You know, how about that? Let's give these um, individuals who are the descendants of enslaved people the opportunity to really, really, really um, do well in business and economically. But I know that this is a lot to ask. And why would you ask um, the, the very system that enslaved your ancestors to come back around and pay for it because it's a moral responsibility. Whether they do it or not, I think just putting that in their faces is our responsibility. So this is really a lot to ask, though. The ones who are receiving the request may think so, but in the grand scheme of things, the story you just told us, uh, how do we get to this point? It was really a lot to ask to say, look, I need you to, and I say cut me a check as a metaphor. I need you to cut me a check or cut us a check to help balance the playing field. Is that a lot to ask? It's not a lot to ask, Mike, but this is the thing is, um, and yes, they're going to end up having to cut a check too. So I don't want to say that, you know, financially just having uh, cash on hand is, is not an option. It is definitely an option. Um, but I think it's important to um, understand that while we are going through these conversations about reparations, we have to, on the other hand, be educating ourselves about what that could mean and what that could look like and really empowering our own individual families, you know, on these issues. And then we need to empower ourselves as a community of black people and say, hey, let's get together ourselves and have these conversations because we want to be prepared. We want to be prepared in case something does turn and the uh, federal government is willing to be um, open to the conversation. If H.R. 40 passes and they do form the committee, then I, don't, I would hate to see black people sitting out here uneducated not even knowing what reparations is. So I think we have to do our due, due diligence as citizens, and that's part of what reparations is. Okay, it's basically saying um, three things is 
I am a part of a family and I am due an inheritance. Okay, so we know that wealth is generated over time. The, the wealth gap right now is something like 20 times. And what that means is for every nickel that a black family has, for every nickel that a black family has, a white family has a dollar. So there's no way that if I make $15 an hour, I'm going to catch up to that CEO making $250,000 a year. I'm not going to catch up. That wealth gap is too great. So we have to have some type of economic boost, and that's largely going to come through um, business, through entrepreneurship. And so we have to be able to have access to these things in order to close the gap. And, well, I'm going to finish my point. I'm sorry, I hit a rabbit trail, but knowing that that inheritance, all of that time generationally that we could have had to to build and sustain wealth for ourselves, we haven't had it because we didn't have a house. We didn't own the land, and we couldn't sell that land or build on that land and then pass it down to our children and their children and their children. We haven't had that. So it's about understanding what inheritance and legacy is. Reparations is about citizenship. It's really saying black people are citizens. That's what it is. You know, we have a lot of people that come to America for a better life. You know, Mm -hmm. this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. But for black people, it's the land of the thief and the home of the slave because we are not acknowledged as citizens until it's time to shuck and jive. We should be acknowledged as citizens by them, by the government saying, yes, we will repair what we broke. And then the thirdly, it's pure patriotism. How many other populations are getting reparations? And not just racialized populations. I'm talking about American farmers. Right now, due to the tariff deal that our president has got going on, our farmers in Iowa are getting $1 billion in relief because they're not able to to make the money that they would normally be able to make due to tariffs. So the federal Mm -hmm. government stepped in and says, hey, we've got this market facilitation program. If you sign this paper, Mr. Farmer Man, you can get a reparation, and they do. And now Iowa has $1 billion coming in for farmers' reparations. So you can't tell me that the money is not there, and you can't tell me that you're not willing to be patriotic because you're taking care of some Americans in times of distress distress and catastrophe. So I think, you know, America is talking out both sides of her neck. We're like the illegitimate children of the country. And we always have been. I was just about to say, and we always have been. It's nothing, it's nothing new. Uh, you know, we're running that, we're running up on time. But I kind of want to bring you back because I, I, I have a couple of things you said in that really struck me. Like, okay, let's get beyond the government doing what they're supposed to do. Let's get beyond all what they do. How do we as a uh, become. I'm, I'm searching for my words carefully because I don't want to disparage anybody. But how do we as a people become more in tune with what's happening? Uh, uh, Dave Chappelle had a joke, and he said, 
Flynn would come back tomorrow, we wouldn't even know about it. He's too busy watching Steve Harvey show. You know, mm-hmm. how do we how do we get to a point to where we are educated enough to where we understand what's happening? We ain't got to be having ins and outs, but how do we get there? Well, maybe I have ask you that question. Have you think about it, and I'll bring you back on later. But <laughs> well, I will say that it's it's some things just need to stay old school. I like technology, and I like all the new advances that we have working in our favor. But some stuff needs to just stay old school. Sometimes you go to your homeboy's house, Mike, and you somebody busts out a, a, a deck of cards and a 12-pack of beer, and y'all sit there, play cards, and just talk about what's going on in the world. Who does that anymore? And that's what we're missing. We're missing our community, our culture, the music that tells us, you know, self-destruction, you're headed for self-destruction. We need these things. I mean, all I need to do is just play Lauryn Hill, the miseducation of Lauryn Hill, and just let that speak for me, and that should reach somebody. So I say we get back to talking to one another, we get back to reading books, we get back to sharing information, we get back to loving on each other's children and being there and being kind to one another and understanding that we are connected. The more I learn about um, the historical plight of enslaved Africans and what that has meant to the country, and what the contributions were, if you if you yank the black contribution away from the United States, you wouldn't have a United States, okay? So knowing that makes me understand the more I understand that I'm black, the less singular I become. I become a part of every living person, every living thing, and I want to take care of that, and I want to do what I can to empower that. So I think it just takes us coming back to our sense of community as black people, and we can do that no matter how small we are in number in a certain area. We are the global majority. I know that's right. You know the last time I had a good big with game? Anyway, you know. <laughs> yeah, some cards. Let's take some beer. Let's talk some stuff. So Yeah. I think I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you back. And we wanna kinda flesh out this topic because it's it's near and dear um to me. I know it's near and dear to you and near and dear to a lot of my listeners. Uh, so I definitely want to bring you back if you have some more time so we can maybe well, delve love into to come back and talk to you. It's been a great hour. The what? I said I'd love to come back anytime. It's been a great hour. Definitely. I Well, it's almost an hour, but uh, <laughs> I definitely need that again because, like I said, I kind of want to – reparations is being – I want to delve into the black community and what we can do to become stronger – uh, than we used to, than we are. I should say, not used to be, than we are. Uh, because it's, it's obvious. It, it's, it's apparent when we, when we got a little bit of acceptance in the 70s, the gap between the penthouse and the outhouse got greater. And I kind of oh, yeah. want to talk about But uh, we'll, we'll do it offline. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss and figure out, you know, when you got some more time. I want to chop it up again with you. It's always, it's always a pleasure. Because I can hit you with the intellect, and you can you can dodge and deflect and give it back to me. So that's that's a that's a gift. Um, but in the meantime, do you have anything any 
statements that you want to say about anything we talk about to this point. What wrap it up into a nice little bow. <laughs> well, I just want to um in a nice little bow, I do want to say that I have um had a lot of amazing experiences so far in my life, but um I was just a little girl on my mama's lap. You know, I was a little girl standing on my daddy's feet, you know, so I owe it to my parents to be the best self that I can be. Um, I have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and a wonderful husband and an amazing um, community that surrounds me and lifts me up, my sisters and my brothers. They lift me up and they surround me with love and understanding and some truth to keep me in check, and so I am nothing without that, so I want to say that. And that's that type of community that we all need, regardless of the lines that divide us. We need that kind of community. So I just would encourage your listeners to keep listening to your your show and keep learning and learn to look with people and not just at people. So look with them, have some empathy, be kind to each other, and just keep, keep moving forward, and then we can be the best we can together. Preach Church Tabernacle. And on that note, I would like to definitely thank my guest today, Mrs. Avina. Oh, no, before we go, before we go, your book club. I wanted to talk oh about my that. <laughs> so I'll just say now, quickly, um, we have a book club. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you, Mike. So we have about five minutes left. Let's talk about, or we can have about five minutes left. We have a book club that you do, I believe, monthly? Yes, we meet every month, once a month on the last Tuesday of every month in Des Moines at the Northside Community Center from 6 to 8 p.m. And so the book club is called Sankofa Literary Group Book Club. And uh, we celebrate the legacies and stories of the black diaspora by reading books by black authors, every genre, but the authors are black. And they don't have to be American black. They're all over the world, global, global. Um, And everyone is welcome. So the book club is not just for black people or just for women. It's for anybody. So we have this broad base of of, um, fun people that show up every month. And then we also do an online book club once a month for people that can't make it to us or that are not in the Des Moines area. So we do a one-hour online book club as well. Okay, so once a month, where again? Northside Community Center. The address is 3010 6th Avenue, so 30106th Avenue. And that's the last Tuesday of every month from 6 to 8 p.m. Okay, and you see you have an online with people who can't make it, right? Yep, online. And um, you'll actually need to come and friend me on Facebook. Um, I will make sure that I get linked up with Mike's page, and so you can find us there. But we'd love yeah. to have more members. Definitely, definitely. And on that note, I, I want to make sure I hit everything that I had on my list. <laughs> thank um, you. I will definitely thank my guest this evening, Miss Mrs. I keep saying this, Mrs. Abina Sankofa in Hotel. Uh, dropping knowledge, dropping them gem, gem gems on you, dropping those jewels on you. I would definitely have her back because we, we're just scratching the surface of what this can be. So on that note, 
I'm going to bid y'all to do like I do every week. And I'll always say, take care of yourself because you all you got. And again, thank you for showing up. Uh, I really appreciate it. And on that note, I'm going to say peace. If my theme song would play. Oh, well, it ain't playing, so I'll just think of Fusalistic Linguistics. Check out the Fusalistic Linguistics piece. <laughs>